Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've talked about how there are so many different fields within pathology and laboratory medicine. And sometimes people start in one and then move to another. My guest today is Andrea Alvarez. She is a pathologist assistant, but she started off as a medical laboratory scientist. We're going to talk about how she got interested in both of those fields and how she carried the skills from one into the other. We'll talk about her current position and about the specimen radiography system from CubTech. All right, here's Andrea Alvarez. Something that I, that I found very interesting is how people discover uh, the careers in pathology and laboratory medicine, because I know for me, you know, I didn't hear about these things in, in high school and really not in, in college either. It was actually kind of late in college that I heard about the lab at all. So I'm curious about that experience for other people. Now, you started as a medical laboratory scientist. So I'm curious, how did you find out about that career? So, yeah, actually in undergrad, I was a pre-med major and it was mandatory for all pre-meds to take uh, intro to health science class. And in the class, we kind of discussed multiple career options in healthcare. I feel like when you're in high school, like the only healthcare careers you really hear about are doctors and nurses. So uh, being a yeah. sophomore and taking this course, like I, it was so eye-opening to like learn about all these other career options. Um, one of the days we discussed medical laboratory science as an option and it kind of like grabbed my attention pretty quickly. I thought the really cool part about medical laboratory science was that like the results that we put out for patient care is instrumental. And then you could also impact hundreds of individuals on a daily basis versus if you're like a nurse or a doctor, you're tied to focusing on like four to eight patients per day. Um, so I think that huge impact of like an eight hour shift and being able to like put results out for hundreds of patients that ultimately will be filtered out by the doctors to create a treatment plan for them was exciting to me. So then what was the training program like for you for medical laboratory science? Uh, so three years in undergrad, like pre-rec courses. So you have your microbial organic chemistry, anatomy, biology, stuff like that. And then during the junior year, third year of undergrad, you start applying to clinical programs for medical laboratory and science. Uh, I went to undergrad at Purdue University, so they had a lot of affiliations already with medical laboratory science programs. And um, I applied in my senior year. I did my clinical rotations. From there, directly out of school, did you, was it e easy to um, apply for positions? Were there a lot available? Definitely. Um, I think there is a big draw right now for medical laboratory sciences uh, there's a huge turnover rate yeah. from individuals who were in that field prior currently are retiring so um the job market is huge for medical laboratory scientists anyone who kind of wants to get into it i feel you can find a hospital with the subspecialty if you want to subspecialize uh quite easily yeah that's i've heard quite a bit about that i mean there's 
there's a shortage of lab professionals in all positions, but I think medical laboratory scientist is probably the the biggest one has the has the biggest shortage. Now you mentioned uh, subspecialties. So as far as the different kind of areas of the lab, which which ones were your favorites? Um, I worked in blood bank and I really enjoyed blood bank. And I also really enjoyed hematology. With blood bank, I enjoyed the complexity of like antibody identification. Also, there was like a huge adrenaline rush when you had to prepare units for like a trauma. One of my other favorite parts was like the fragility of hematopoietic stem cell transplants and intrauterine blood transfusions. Uh, it's just such a wide range of tasks that you can be involved in blood bank. That was really what drew me into it. And then uh, hematology was also one of my other favorites. I kind of like taking the time to do like a differential on a CBC and being like, oh, well, this one looks more immature or that looks more mature. So it was pretty cool to kind of like spend some time under the scope and analyze the different cells. You know, that's interesting because almost everyone every medical laboratory scientist that I've talked with so far, when I ask that kind of question, almost every one of them says blood bank. That's, that's interesting that that's, that seems to be the most interesting part of the lab that, and I, and I don't have any experience in, in the clinical lab. So that's, that's something that I'm trying to explore a little bit more. As you were working as a medical laboratory scientist, somehow you found out about anatomic pathology and the pathologist assistant pr- profession. So can you tell me that story? How did you how did you find out about that? Yeah, so um, as I was doing my clinical rotations for clinical uh, medical laboratory science, the anatomic pathology unit was also on the same floor. The gross room actually had a drop-off window where every single time I walked past, I would kind of like peek through and all I saw was these like huge organs. And at that point, I couldn't even tell you like a small bowel versus like a kidney apart. I just saw them versus these organs coming out of buckets. So I kept walking past that window and I began to get more and more interested to see what was actually happening in that room. So I looked up anatomic pathology and actually came across quite a few job postings for pathologist assistants that was associated with my search. Um, I kind of looked into that a little bit more and read like job descriptions and duties that were associated with the PA. And I was like, wow, this is really exciting. I think this could really be where I want to go uh, moving forward as far as further education. So then I just kind of shadowed there for a few months here and there, not like directly for the two months. And um, over the time, I fell in love with like working with surgical specimens and taking more time on like one specimen and eventually like I realized this is the career path I needed to take. Okay. As you were shadowing, I mean, was it just like watching or did they let you actually do, do some things? Um, so I was able to ink a lumpectomy six colors. Um, I was able well, that's to, cool. yeah. So they let me ink. I was able to rinse out the placentas and flip the membranes to get it ready for fixation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, I was able to cut frozen, not like on actual tissue, like diagnostic tissue, but kind of like tissue that was ready to be tossed out. So I used that tissue and embedded it and cut a few slides with it. So that was pretty cool. 
Oh, okay. So it sounds like these experiences really kind of hooked you on the, on the field. Definitely. And like when we did have Rosens, I was able to scope with the attending and the residents and the PA. So that was cool. Oh, wow. Okay. That sounds like a great experience. All right. Then you decided you were going to apply to PA school. Uh, what was that process like? I applied to about five of the, I think there's nine accredited or 10 accredited programs now. And I kind of was just open to all locations. Uh, being from Chicago, Rosalind Franklin was definitely in my top choice because I wanted to stay in that area. Mm-hmm. However, that didn't work out. Um, and I ended up applying and being accepted at Loma Linda University. So I was flying out for interviews and uh, it would be usually a day process, a full day process, and then waiting to hear back for acceptance letters. So Loma Linda ended up being my choice. Most of the of the pathologist assistant programs have a kind of a similar format as far as the, because it's a two-year program. But let's kind of go through for anybody out there who's considering becoming a pathologist assistant, what the program is like. So generally the, the first year is your kind of didactic work. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. And, and what, what kind of things are covered during that year? So like many PA programs, like it's just super rigorous your first year. It's filled with multiple courses. It usually begins with like a cadaver lab. So you're kind of engrossed in a cadaver, learning the anatomy, learning how to dissect. So getting comfortable with using scalpels, using forceps. And that's typically the first course you'll take as a PA student. Then it gets kind of coupled in with disease mechanisms. So learning the background of like how cancer happens and how certain disease processes occur. So that kind of segues also to like microscopy. So under the microscope, what once you start taking sections of these specimens, what does it look like? How can that, knowing how they look like under the microscope, make you a better PA by um, taking appropriate sections? So first year was a lot of studying. <laughs> it became a full-time job, just mm-hmm. studying all day. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, going the second year, then that's all the clinical rotations, right? That's correct. Um, so at Loma Linda, we rotated clinical sites every six to eight weeks, which kind of allowed us to go to a wide variety of hospitals and getting to see a lot of wide variety of specimens based on complexity and then just kind of um, volume wise too. Getting to rotate every six to eight weeks also allowed us to be kind of more flexible and uh, learning to adapt quite quickly. Um, each location has their own software, own preferences on how they want to submit tissues. So it was a challenge, but it was great to be able to be exposed to so much. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, having to, you know, every six weeks, you, you've got to adapt to a completely new place with new people. And like you said, new computer system, that's got to be a little bit difficult. But I think, you know, you you get you get used to, uh, you know, say the different pathologists have different preferences uh, with certain types of specimens. Is that that's that seems like that would be good experience to have. Definitely. Um, I know, like working now, we have 
at least 30 pathologists and they are constantly being rotated as far as when they're attending, I'm sorry, when they're signing out. And we have to remember to kind of cater to each attending's preferences. So it's just a good skill to um, hone in on when you are a student. So then at what point during the second year do you start like applying for jobs or even looking for jobs? Um, I think it's based on your preference. Um, I would definitely say within the last three months, you probably want to be quite active as far as securing a job. Um, but if you are trying to lo- relocate to a specific area, I think applying sooner or prior to those three months would probably be a better option for you. If you're open to relocate to any location, then waiting till the last three months might be suitable. That way you can kind of pick and choose where, what hospital or what site has the best benefits for you and will work the best for your style. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then how did that go for you? So I started applying uh, probably six months in advance. I knew I wanted to make the move to New York City after PA school and I applied to pretty much every hospital in New York City. So there's a ton of them. So we have Memorial Sloan, Columbia, Cornell, uh, Montefiore. There's just an abundance of great hospitals here in New York City. And I knew if I landed a job in any of one of these, like I would be ecstatic with the type of environment they any of the hospitals provided. Eventually, I did accept a position at Columbia and uh, started about three weeks after graduating. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now, you said you knew that you wanted to go to New York City. Why was that? Um, I had visited New York as a first year in PA school, and I kind of just fell in love with the culture and like the fast-paced nature of New York City. I was born in Chicago, so I've always been a city girl. So I guess I was like, what else to do? I've already done Chicago. Um, New York City is the next step up. So I decided to relocate to New York City. Okay, I see. That, that makes sense. Your current role then is as the grocery manager. So can we kind of go through like your, your first couple of years after graduating and how you got t- into this position? Yeah, so... Being at Columbia, I was exposed to high volume and high complexity specimens coming into the grocery room every day. Um, I quickly just learned the ropes. And as they saw that I was grasping and excelling in gross room in general, um, they started to tack on more responsibilities. And it's happened probably before my first year was even up. So probably around months eight and nine. I began training residents and even new PAs in surgical pathology and autopsy. So I think once they saw that I was able to manage my time and still go above and beyond with additional responsibilities, they actually offered the position to me and I decided to accept and became the grocery manager. You know, being in New York City, uh, I want to talk for a minute about because that was one of the places that was the hardest hit at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So let's, okay. So let's kind of talk about what was your experience like uh, for work at the, at the beginning and kind of the beginning part of the, of the pandemic. 
So once our cases started to rise here in New York, we were actually canceling elective surgeries and we were transforming the OR space into ICU units. So our surgical specimen count actually dramatically decreased to the point where the gross room PAs were only coming in uh, like two or three times a week to grow specimens because we didn't have enough specimens for all the PAs to be back. No, that sounds familiar. I had a similar experience. There was a quite, uh, there was maybe like a three or four week lag. I would say probably closer to three week where we had a slow down in the gross room, but then we started seeing a lot of COVID autopsy requests. So at Columbia, we actually have a negative pressure room and um, we utilize this space to start performing COVID autopsies. We saw that there is a in a quite an increased race, um, a quite an increase in autopsy requests, and we needed to adjust our hours to accommodate for that. So between a group of four PAs, we were working 12-hour shifts to do as many autopsies as possible. There was a big push to collect uh, fresh tissue for research, and each researcher had a certain postmortem interval that we needed to abide by. So sometimes it was four hours, sometimes it was like 12-hour PMI, and each research we had to, researcher we had to remember what their PMI requests were. So we were just attempting to do all of the autopsies within like four to six hours of PMI, which meant longer hours for us in autopsies. Mm-hmm. What about like additional safety precautions? What kind of things did you have to do there? Um, so in the isolation room, we all had to wear N95s. Um, we did not use a bone saw. Uh, so we had to do all the rib cutting with bone cutters. We only limited one brain removal a day. And that was the last case that we would do. And actually, our neuropathologist would be the ones who would remove the brain as they would be wearing a papper. And um, they were one of the few individuals that were fitted for the papper prior to uh, COVID. So they came in and removed one brain at a time. At that point, we would let the particles dissipate and then we would come into the room and do a deep clean with like bleach and other disinfectants to prepare for the next day. They also used a bone saw with a vacuum. So then it would uh, vacuum up any of the aerosolization that was happening while they were removing the brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. I I suppose I probably know the answer since you said you, but you were kind of working 12 hour shifts, but you hear stories about, uh, you know, other lab staff or pathology staff being sort of redeployed into other areas uh, since, the, like you said, the surgical cases were so low. I imagine you didn't, you didn't have to deal with that because you were so busy with autopsies, right? That's correct. Um, I do think some of our pathology residents do were dispersed uh, to kind of like clerical work in other departments, though. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. All right. Well, since you mentioned the, the residents, let, let's let's talk about that for a little bit because I know part of your your role now as a grocery manager, you uh, teach residents. Yeah, it's uh, quite a fun process. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk about that because I've noticed uh, just from reading things, uh, you know, online and other places that it seems like there's less of an emphasis uh, for resident education on the grossing aspect. I. So- I- I definitely agree with that. I feel like even our residents compared to some of the fellows or attendings that had gone through residency gross a lot less than their more experienced attending. All right. As far as like uh, teaching, teaching the residents then because I feel like you have to kind of get them excited about grossing. I mean, for us, that's easy because that's what we do and, and we do it because we love it. How, how do you do that with the, with the, with the residents? How do you get them excited about grossing? Yeah, you definitely see the difference in residents. Some are more eager to get their hands dirty in the gross room and others definitely shy yeah. away. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, when it's their grossing day, I first try and like look for what's the most complex case that we have in this gross room. Ideally, I like to re- uh, receive fresh specimens for them so that they can have some exposure on how to properly prep a complex specimen um, as opposed to have it already inked and prepped by a PA. Mm-hmm. Um, then we go over like anatomy and important land par- landmarks on that specimen. I will then pull up um, the AJCC staging manual or guideline for that specimen and show them how important like the measurements and the sections that we are taking um, applies to the staging component when they're signing out for a case. So though they do the grading mostly under the scope, the staging and the grade is ultimately what's going to be in, needed for sign out. So I use that and I think that kind of stresses to them like, okay, what's being done in the gross room really does affect patient care afterwards. And then I also try and using histologic images so on Google, I will just search like a kidney cortex or something similar to them. Like, okay, so we're going to show tumor to cortex or a renal capsule. And um, I will pick an image on Google and just show it to them. And be like, so the section we just took under the microscope is going to look like this. So it's kind of like a sneak peek, I guess, before they actually get their ne- other slides the next day. And I think using some of the microscopy and the staging guidelines kind of helps them get a little bit more excited versus just cutting up tissue, because sometimes I feel that's how they see it. (laughs) Yeah, those are two uh, really important points, I think, you know, connecting the grossing to the staging that that's something that, you know, a resident and an attending pathologist can understand. I mean, that's that's kind of their their role. So. I, I like that you're connecting that to the staging. That that makes a lot of sense. And it, and it stresses the importance of the grossing because a lot of the information that you use, you know, for staging, like you said, that it comes from the from the gross, either the sections or the gross description itself. The other part, showing the pictures, kind of that visual aspect. I like that too. That's a, I think that's a good way to connect everything together. So that's that's important. Now, are you, do, do the PAs entirely teach the the residents the the grossing part? I mean, are the attendings involved in that area? Uh, So as a first-year resident, we do a full rotation with them 
when they're in the gross room, hands-on. So, uh, I mean, sorry, one-on-one. So we remove one PA off the bench to be entirely devoted to that first-year resident and train them on the specimens that they receive for that day. So we are an integral part for their first-year training. Once they have gone through the gross room for their rotation, moving forward, we are still there to answer their questions. Uh, however, they are asked to gross independently and um, follow up with their fellow or their attending with any additional questions. But if it's something like quick, typically they ask the PAs beforehand. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds similar to what we have for our work. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Andrea Alvarez. We'll be right back. LabVine is building a team to help lab medicine professionals live their best lives. Now, these are commission-based sales positions, and the only requirement is that you're passionate about helping people, especially laboratorians. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can email for more information or just watch the LabVine social media pages. Also this month on LabVine, there are some great resources for managing laboratory finances. These topics include financial management, financial statements, budgets, controlling costs, and making financial decisions. And you can find these at LabVine by following the link in the show notes. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Andrea Alvarez on the People of Pathology podcast. I, I like to talk about new technologies on this podcast. And uh, at Columbia there, you've got one of piece of equipment that's something that I find very interesting. And a lot of people are talking about these things. It's a specimen radiography system from uh, CubTech. And I, and I want to talk about this. First of all, you've got, I think, I think you told me you have the Expert 80 model yeah okay Mm -hmm. now when people talk about these things one of the things is kind of justifying the the purchase because they're not you know they're not cheap understandably so were you part of this process like how do you how do you make the case that that you need a a piece of equipment like this right so prior to purchasing the cub tech we would have to go to mammography and x-ray our specimens or blocks, whatever we uh, needed to uh, have x-rayed. Unfortunately, mammography is in an entirely separate building and it requires coordinating with the radiography team to set up a time to get our specimens x-rayed. And obviously patients become our priority. So we sometimes get pushed and forgotten. So Eventually, we were just like, we are wasting so much time trying to coordinate with mammography to get an x-ray done for our specimens. And it's taking just too much time from our gross, uh, grossing room. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's taking too much time from uh, grossing. So there was a huge delay when it came to grossing these specimens. And we ultimately kept asking for an imaging device. Um, we also acquired a new breast surgeon. So with the increased volume of breast specimens, we pleaded to have an imaging de- uh, device in the gross room. We did our research on multiple imaging devices, and we actually reached out to both 
vendors from Factotron and CubTech to see which one would be best for our lab. And we ultimately decided to go with the CubTech Expert 80 just because of all the neat features it had and how willing they were to expedite uh, the process to get an imaging device um, shipped to us. Okay. You know, you, you mentioned the breast surgeon. Uh, was the surgeon involved with this kind of process at all? Because it seems like they would, you know, want you to have a device like this, and like they would benefit their their practice as well. Where that was was the surgeon involved? Um, not to my knowledge. I do believe the the breast surgeons actually have multiple cub techs or factorons in their OR suite. Oh that yeah, we don't have access to. So, um, but our breast uh, pathologists were actually very involved in the process. They also were the ones who were pushing for us to get an imaging device on site. They like to x-ray a lot of their breast biopsy blocks to find calcifications. So they mm-hmm. too were getting kind of taken away from their duties when signing out cases by having to go to mammography and get their blocks x-rayed. So ultimately, I think it was a big push from the PAs the breast pathologist and our like supervisor. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the features of of the expert 80, because this sounds like a really interesting device. Yeah. It's a, it's a great machine. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So you mentioned, of course, of course you use it for breast specimens. Are there other specimens that you might use, uh, use this for? Yeah. So the great thing about the expert is that, it's self-containment device, so it's very user-friendly. There's no threat to any user, and it's obviously time-saving. But the specimens we, like like I mentioned, are primarily breast specimens. We actually have expanded its use to uh, fetus or fetopsies and histology blocks. We have yet to use it on an osteosarcoma case, but um, it was advertised to us that um, other labs have used it for osteosarcoma cases to kind of identify where the screws and rods might be located. Um, that way you're not dulling your blade every single time you're cutting into it. There's... Okay. That, that makes sense. That would, that would save a lot of, a lot of time too. Yeah. Uh, what about something like, like I've heard people use these for kind of to check decalcification of, of bone to check if it's, if it's, you know, finished decaling. Do you, you do you use it for that? Oh, we have not, but that would be a great, another great, like a great use of the CubTech. So let's talk about some of the other features. Now, I know you can, you can actually measure things directly on the screen, right? Yes. So um, they have a function where it's just a ruler and you kind of just do a draw, a click and draw. So what we've used it for is to kind of image, I mean, sorry, to measure where the location of the biopsy is to the nearest uh, edge. And that kind of helps you pinpoint exactly where in that slice is the biopsy clip. So you'll say like it's 1.3 centimeters from the anterior surface and so many centimeters from the superior surface. And then you can pretty much pinpoint exactly where that biopsy clip is at, which is wonderful. Yeah, it sounds like that would save a lot of time. Yeah, it definitely has. Okay. And then something else it has is this thing called the image blender. Can you tell me about that? What is that? Yeah. So the expert 80 actually takes 
a raw image of your specimen and an x-ray at the same time. So what happens is if you use the blender function, it superimposes the raw image and the x-ray on top of each other. And then um, you can toggle between having like a sharper x-ray image or a sharper gross image of the specimen. And um, it allows you to pinpoint where the biopsy is at on the slice by locating it on the gross image and locating it on the x-ray at the same time. Okay. Okay. So, so again, there, that would, that would save a lot of time. Do you think it using a device like this would save uh, tissue blocks as well? Like you'd have to, you wouldn't have to submit as many because you'd be more precise about your sections. Yes, uh, definitely. And I think we have noticed the um, large reduction in the number of cassettes we submit on breast cases, especially on mastectomies because we know exactly where the lesion is at, exactly where the biopsy clip is at. So versus sampling a large area where we think the tumor bed may be, we know exactly where it's at. So we're reducing it to probably one representative section per slice uh, to prove that the tumor is indeed in those slices versus previously we would um, uh, sample the entire tumor bed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, like where I work, we've, you know, mastectomies often have multiple clips in them. Is that, is that similar for you? Like I could see having a device like this with a, and having to find multiple clips would save a lot of time and a lot of blocks. Yeah. So we get like mastectomies anywhere from like two to five clips uh-huh. in each. Yeah. So I, and it has been very helpful. Even the biopsies that proved to be benign and unremarkable breast parenchyma, it is still our policy to sample that area. So we, like, it'd be hard to find benign tissue in a breast parenchyma, in a, sorry, in a mastectomy. But with the expert 80, even though there is a biopsy clip there in the embedded unremarkable breast parenchyma, we can find it easier now. Then, so what happens to the images then after after you take them? Do they get stored on the machine, or can you can you upload them into like the pathology reports or something like that? Um, I believe, depending on what type of software you have, you can upload them into the patient's EMR. Currently, for us, we are just saving it onto the hard drive of the expert eighty, and our IT team has been able to add a function to the expert AE and allow attendings and fellows and uh, residents to remote into the expert AD and look at the images on their own screen. So they can also use the functions as well. So it's not just the images, they can kind of remote in and play around with the expert AD outside. Oh, okay. So they could actually measure things as well if they needed to. Exactly. Oh, all right. That seems like that'd be very useful. Okay. You know, another topic that I've been kind of talking about a, a bit lately is I've, I've found that, that many people in pathology have a creative side to them. So I'm curious for you, do you have uh, some creative interests outside of the pathology field? Um, I do. I actually really enjoy oil painting. Prior to PA school, I took a course in oil painting as a freshman in college and um, 
I bought all my supplies. I fell in love with it. And I pretty much focused on painting landscapes and stills. However, during PA school, I kind of put oil painting off to the side and um, put it on the back burner. And actually, haven't picked it up since. Moving in New York, there's just like not a lot of space to prop up an easel. So um, mm, sure. I kind of substituted that creative nature with cooking. So okay. um, with cooking, I actually uh, love trying new recipes of like all cultural backgrounds. Um, I definitely would say Indian is my favorite. I just feel like those dishes are just filled with so many spices and flavors that I find a lot of joy cooking Indian dishes. Okay, that makes sense. And I imagine with your skills as a PA, you're probably very good at cutting uh, you know, vegetables and other things. Yeah, it's quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you don't have to, do you have to, do you, do you cut your things at the three to four millimeters when you're cooking? Um, sometimes I have to get a little thicker. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so looking back to your time as a, as a medical laboratory scientist, do you think that experience helped you, at, you know, those skills and those experiences, do you think that helped make you a better PA? Uh, most definitely. I think micro and probably hematology were the two departments that have a lot of like overlap with anatomic pathology. Um, when it comes to micro, I think what was most applicable was like just being familiar with all these like microorganisms, right? So, for example, if the clinical history just mentions AFB, we automatically think like tuberculosis. So right. we put on the proper P and handle the specimen accordingly. And just like being familiar once again, like with any like bacterial, fungal or parasitic infections that may be included in that cl clinical history, we kind of pause, especially if the specimen was received that fresh. And we reach out to micro and see like, hey, did you guys receive your own sample of this specimen? Do you by any chance want it? It's not exactly as sterile as they probably should receive it, but um, it's better than not having something to swab and plate and culture up. So I think having that background in micro was super helpful. And also it comes into play when we do see some of these like clinical histories. We also ask our attendings, hey, we see there's a concern for so-and-so. Uh, would you guys want us to order some special things up front? So it also helps like to get things rolling at the beginning to not delay a uh, sign up for a case. Sure. That makes sense. That like the knowledge that you had about have about those things helps you to more quickly make those decisions. Yeah. And um, again, with hematology, I think it's also a good uh, correlation between the clinical pathology and anatomical pathology. So Anytime we receive like a fresh thymus or lymph node, we look up the history to see if there's any indication for fresh specimens to be worked up for lymphoma. Just yesterday, actually, we had a fresh lymph node come in with the only clinical history we had was anemia. And uh, I had the PA pause and told her, don't put it in formalin. Let's contact the HEMCAT team because even though it only said anemia, knowing that leukemia and lymphomas can present as an anemic patient, 
helped us reach out to the HemePath team. And it did, it, it indeed warranted a lymphoma workup. So just stuff like that, kind of having some background in micro and hematology, I think helps prepare a PA to be a little bit above and beyond. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's important. I like that. Okay. I want to talk about like advice for students that are interested in becoming pathologist assistants, just from your, I guess, from your own experience and maybe things that you feel like you you did, you did right, like the shadowing part and things that maybe you you feel like you could have done that, that you didn't have the opportunity to. So someone who's thinking about getting a job like ours, what advice would you have for them? Uh, Definitely research the field extensively. I would also say be open to relocating uh, with the amount of limited PA schools. Sometimes moving to a whole new state might be necessary to follow your dream job. Uh, Once again, shadowing is going to be the best way to find out if this is truly the career for you. I unfortunately only shadowed at one location, but I would recommend shadowing at least at two different locations and ideally one being a larger institution and perhaps a smaller community hospital, the larger institution is going to provide you with a large variety of complex specimens, frozen and possible tissue procurement for, t- uh, for research. So that would be a lot of benefits that you can get from uh, shadowing a larger institution. And then uh, shadowing a community hospital can also provide insight on other responsibilities that a PA has outside of grossing. Many PAs at community hospitals wear multiple hats, you know, so this can include like preparing the lab for an inspection or they may be part of like a quality assurance team. They could implement like new procedures and policies. So getting to see multiple aspects of what a PA does on a daily basis is great. I also did not get to see any autopsies uh, while I was shadowing there just wasn't any the time that I was in the gross room to be sent down to the autopsy suite to shadow. So at least getting to see one full autopsy prior to applying to PA school would be great. And I think that's the best exposure you can have if you truly want to pursue a career as a pathologist assistant. Yeah, for sure. And I like that you mentioned that, you know, when people talk about PAs, it's pretty much just, you know, you hear about the grossing and the autopsies. But yeah, a lot of us have um, administrative roles or even management roles sometimes. So it's good to get an idea of what that might be uh, before you get into the field. So I like that. That's a good idea. Okay, Andrea, this has been a really interesting conversation. I I really appreciate learning more about your career so far and uh, a lot of the, the interesting things you've been up to. So Andrea Alvarez, thank you very much. Thank you so much, too. Great big thanks to Andrea Alvarez. Uh, Next week, I'll be speaking with Dr. Tian Yu from Truckee Applied Genomics, and we'll be talking all about molecular pathology and spatial biology. Here's a short preview, and then I'll be back with some final thoughts on this episode. They taught me a lot of study techniques and helping out with my courses a lot. Um, but I didn't really start to really get what biochemistry is or um, I didn't really start to love it until when the time comes for me to do my senior thesis research. So with my senior thesis research, I got into this um, very nice entomology and biochemistry lab. 
it's a wonderful lab with great lab mates. It's very collaborative nature. And uh, I have a great mentor who's a, a postdoc at the time and that really taught me the ins and outs of bio, biochemistry techniques and how to conduct research and experiment. You know, that feeling of getting some good results out of a really tricky and very interesting experiment, uh, you don't forget it once you experience it. And that really just started my passion for uh, doing research, especially in molecular biology. This episode really highlights how much overlap there is between the different laboratory fields. And I think it's important to note that the skills that you learn in one area, you can take with you somewhere else. And sometimes that makes you even better at that new position. I mean, I know quite a few pathologists that started off as medical laboratory scientists and then went on to medical school. I mean, I featured a few on this podcast. And for myself, I started off as a histotech before training to be a PA. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including a link to CubTech, so you can check out the Expert 80 for yourself. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of the other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.